the message in particular is very unique amongst global religion. A message that first is quite offensive. And after it's offensive, when you get through the offended stage of what Jesus offers, the message then seems almost too good to be true. If I was to offer you a million dollars today, each one of you, and I had a line of black brief briefcases here just full of quads and wads of real, real cash, and gave it to you, if you didn't do anything to earn it, it would be too good to be true. What's the cash? Where did it come from? Uh, those sorts of questions would be there. So Christianity, the message first, offends us because it tells us that we are sinners. But then it's almost too good to be true because we hear that God loves sinners. That He comes to save sinners. And so you have this first stumbling block that we're confronted with, and then you have the second stumbling block because it seems almost too good to be true. Jesus won't let you remain on the fence about Himself. He says wild, outlandish things that people in this world, especially in our world today, are offended at. Jesus says, for instance, in John chapter 14, verse 6, see how well this plays at SIU, Jake, college student back there. See how well this plays at the workplace or at high school, wherever it may be. He says this, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Many claim to love the teachings of Jesus, but when actually the teachings of Jesus are applied culturally, hey, Jesus says, I am the only way to the Father. It's raised against. And more so than ever. I used to hear that growing up and think, like, that's not that offensive. That's kind of what everybody kind of generally believes is that their way is the only way. Not anymore. Not anymore at all. The exclusivity of Christ is wildly and outlandishly offensive. And world religion in general screams with a unified voice, okay, there may be a God, but if there is this God, then it's up to you to get there. After all, you have monumental potential. So it means to be human, to have potential to do good and wonderful things. If there is a God, He is the passive one, and you, my friend, are the active one. And so you get to work, and you get yourself right with God. You get to God. God, after all, is sitting on His hands, and He's waiting for you to do something. World religion screams with that unified voice. Christianity comes along and says, there is a God and you've sinned against Him and you cannot get to Him even by your best efforts. We have a whole different frame of reference for what it means for human potential. Human potential has the ability to degenerate to really, really low places. And when I say, you have no idea what your potential is, I'm not speaking of good things, I'm speaking of really, really bad things. And some of you know that. But Christianity says, so the message of the world first says, you can't, God can't. You can, God can't. So, you have power, God doesn't. Christianity says, you can't, God can't. God is the active agent. We are the passive agent. We are powerless. God is powerful. The first step in any recovery program that you can go through is admitting that you are powerless. That's why it's such a powerful thing to be able to do, to say, I can't do this. I can't. Christianity says, God can. And therefore, a distinctive mark in Christianity is assurance of salvation. A distinctive mark of Christianity is the assurance of salvation because it's not based on what we do or do not do. It's based on the activity and the power of God. So our salvation, if it's God doing something, the assurance of that salvation is as strong as the active agent. Let me just ask you a question. How strong is God? 
very strong. And he has done something to you and for you. Assurance of salvation is a distinctive Christian mark. We can know that we are right with God. Really know. We can really know that our sins have been forgiven. But for so many, so many non-Christians, sadly for many Christians, the message of salvation by Christ alone, by the power of God alone, it feels suspicious. It may be mentally ascended to. A person may be able to even affirm, yes, I'm forgiven. Yes, God's wrath has been appeased. But quickly the question rushes in. But has it really? Am I really forgiven? And we, as believers, can fall into the distinctive mark of world religion, which is no assurance of salvation. And so is there a way to get freedom from a teeter-totter life? For us who are in here, for you who have maybe struggled with this, my work or God's work, is God really happy with me? Am I really His son or am I really His daughter? Is there peace from the flip-flip-flop way of living? And I guess there is. We're going to dive back into this metaphor with Jacob and with Esau this week. And we're going to see God's dealings, not just with Jacob and Esau, but we're going to see again God's dealings with us. We're going to see that Esau's wrath, his anger really was appeased. And we're going to see that Jacob wasn't so sure about that. He was at first celebratory, but quickly began to go into the same old ways of doubt. But is he really happy with me? Are things really okay? Is reconciliation really true? First, let's look at the first three verses of chapter 33. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel, and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, and then Leah with her children, and then Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times, until he came near to his brother. What a radical transformation of Jacob. Something's changed in him in chapter 32, verse 7 and 8. He had this plan when he heard about Esau coming with the 400 men. His plan was, I'm going to separate my, my group into two groups. And therefore, if Esau comes to attack one of the groups, the other group will be able to get away. He was fearful. And then he began to wrestle with this man named Jesus. And he surrendered to Jesus. He found victory. He overcame through surrender. Only in the gospel of Jesus, only in the kingdom of God, can we find victory through claiming defeat. Through saying, I can't give you anything, God. I need everything from you. And Jacob finally was wrestled to the point of submission where he said, Jesus, I have to have what you have. I can no longer, I can't give you anything. I can't earn anything. I have to have what you have and what you have alone. And he clinged to this Jesus. And he was changed. He was different. There was something different now facing Esau than Jacob before he wrestled with Jesus. Because Jacob sees Esau with his 400 men. He doesn't divide the camp. He keeps them all together. And this time, 20 years after seeing Esau, with no, no communication, wondering what would happen, probably still maybe a little bit fearful, but he knew it's time to face up to Esau. So all of his camp is gathered, and he walks out before all of them with his limp, 
bowing down, not knowing if he's going to get his head chopped off, not knowing exactly what's going to happen. But it was time for him to face up to Esau. And so he lines up in order his clan and then steps in front of them and walks out by himself to meet Esau face to face. Walking out in faith. What will happen? Will have God, will God have taken care of Esau's anger? Does Esau only remember, like so many others do, only remember the bad that was done to him? Will he want to kill his brother as he did 20 years before? Jacob, I'm sure, had those questions. But it was time to be a man of faith. And it was time to face up to the past hurt that he had brought to his brother. And so he walked. And he got something wildly unexpected in return. Beautiful reconciliation takes place. Look at verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him. Running. Something Jacob could not do. Jacob is limping out to meet him. Esau is running to meet him and embraced him. Fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Now imagine this scene. What's Jacob thinking? What is Esau thinking? Instead of Esau raging against Jacob for the sins that Jacob had committed to him all those years ago, he ran to meet his brother. He embraced his brother, kissed him, they wept. And we see reconciliation. As Kurt and I were talking about this the other day, one of the most beautiful instances of reconciliation in all of the Scriptures. Between brothers. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you is there anyone that you need to, in this lifetime, like right now, be reconciled to? I'll have to admit, even up to this morning, I was looking through this again, and I had to pause and pray. Because all, although I have forgiven people in my past, there are men and women in my past that I'm not reconciled with. I've forgiven them, but there isn't reconciliation. And I have to confess this morning to the Lord, and I feel it's appropriate to confess to you. I have not prayed a single time for that reconciliation. I've settled with, I've forgiven them, and, and so when I ask myself that question, I have to say, no, I haven't been praying for reconciliation. And I need to change. That's how the Scriptures work. When you see something like this, now my behaviors need to change. God, I want reconciliation now. It's not enough that I just forget it. I want reconciliation. I'm praying for that. And for you, who's out there, it's personal. A brother sinning against a brother. That's personal and faithful. Brothers aren't supposed to sin against each other. But they did. Is there anybody in your life that we need reconciliation with? You can forgive them and there may never be reconciliation. But if that's the case, let it not be because of your lack of prayer. Make sense? Pray for reconciliation. But this metaphor begins to just open up for us more and more. 
Because, as we saw even last week, I referenced chapter 33, verse 10, when Jacob, or East, Jacob says to Esau, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. He connects the dots here, that there's realities going on about Jacob and God, about Esau and God, about the people who would read this, read, uh, this account in God, that we need to take into consideration. It's not just reconciliation between brothers. There's something spiritually happening. God had taken care of Esau's wrath toward Jacob. And it is amazing that God is using Esau to teach us about grace. God is using Esau, Esau, the one who was not chosen. Jacob was. If we should be learning about grace, shouldn't it be through Jacob? But here it is. How powerful God is to be able through Esau us something about His grace, His fatherly and loving care to us, to us, about His power using Esau to teach us. And like Esau's wrath, I want you to get this. Remember Luke chapter 15, there's this famous story. Okay, father, two sons. What happens when the prodigal comes back? Can this kind of get you thinking about that? Lifts up his master. Begins to run to his son, weeping, doesn't even let his son give the spiel. Just welcome home. Friends in Christ. In 1907, the Cubs won the World Series. It sustained them for 109 years. They couldn't get over 1907. And this news that you've heard before, if you didn't know, if you don't know the, the metaphor or the, the story here, they won again, didn't they, Kale? Through many prayers of Kale. They won last year. They won again last year. It's, it's going to sustain them for another 110 years until they win again. Old information isn't dusty. New information is not the only information that needs to be celebrated. And this information you've heard before, but I want you to savor it. Okay, I want you to taste this news. God's wrath toward the believer has been appeased. The privilege of the Christian is that our judge has become our defense. We sing about it in song. And it is so true. Our judge has become our defense. He runs to us. Even now. Running. Larger strides. Mightier hug. Stronger arms. Yet somehow tender. And hug the sons and daughters. It's almost as if it's too good to be true. And for the believer, there's nothing to fear by way of punishment for us. All of his discipline to us, not out of anger, but out of love. As surely as Esau ran with forgiveness in his heart to his brother, God more so runs to us with no wrath. We can be sure 
And in that truth, we have the assurance of our salvation. We have it. How much more God of the universe wrath is appeased than this man Esau? Every story, therefore, for the believer, every story that we see in this world of reconciliation from film to real life to hearing about it through story or article, every story of personal reconciliation is a window for us into deep, deep realities of God reconciling sinners to Himself. God Himself has saved us from Himself because, beloved, there was a time that God's wrath was upon us. And if you're not a believer in this room, God's wrath is upon you. Not just your sins, you. And for us, we know that there's a time that God's wrath was upon us, just like Esau was upon his brother Jacob. But God has saved us, saved us, He has saved us from Himself, from His own wrath, by Himself, and now for Himself. And every forgiving embrace that we witness with our eyes, every time there's reconciliation in an argument in the home between a husband and wife, every time you look at your son or your daughter, if you have kids, and you have that moment of a loving embrace, son, I love you, I discipline you, and then change my love for you. Every time, every forgiving embrace observed from memory past and the present, it's a reminder of God embracing sinners through the cross. And so we need to remember in this story, remember this, okay? This is about Jacob and Esau. But if that's all we get, then we miss the beautiful truth that's there for us. But this is about God and His loving embrace of sinners. Jacob of all men didn't deserve this kind of reaction from Esau. But that's what he got. This in some way was transformative to Jacob. Probably a peculiar moment. I didn't expect this. Weeping on the ground with my brother. Having him hug me. If you've had a reconciliation moment, you know how powerful this can be. And here is Esau and Jacob. Esau asks a question. Jacob responds. Esau asks another question. Jacob responds. First question. You see it in verse 5. Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? Jacob responds, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Verse 6. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. At last Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, second question, What do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. The reason for Jacob's wanting to give a gift begins to suddenly change. When God and man are appeased, our gift giving, or our response to that is changed. First, Jacob says, please accept my blessing. Remember, Jacob stole the blessing from Esau in their spotted history. Now, Jacob wants to bless Esau. 
He wants to give a gift. Somehow or another, there's still, even though he had faith in the Lord, in the fact that this wrestler, Jesus, was going to appease his brother, he still wondered in the back of, the back of his mind, am I going to need to give some of these things to find favor? Is the work of God going to be enough? Is Esau's wrath really going to be appeased? And so he said, well, that you would find favor. That I can find favor in your sight. And Esau says, I don't want any of that. We're good. I just wept with you, my brother. You keep what you have. It was a gracious gift from God. It changes everything. But then we see the motive as these layers of the forgiveness that's really on display from Esau to Jacob. As the layers begin to get unveiled, that Jacob it isn't required to give gifts to Esau. And Esau says, I don't want any of that. Jacob begins somehow or another when we see that there's a change, there's a transformation. And he says, please accept this. And he offers again this gift. And he gives two primary motives. Look at verse 10. Jacob said, no, please, please, Esau, if I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. You have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that I brought to you. Because, one, God has dealt graciously with me. And two, because I have enough. And then he urged him. And he took it. Esau took it. We get insight into Jacob's motive. Why do we want now, after the layers of Esau's forgiveness and begin to be peeled back, why does he now want to give gifts to Esau? He could have said to Esau, okay, I'm going to keep it then. But he insists, no, you have to have this. Please, please. The first motive list, listed is that God has dealt graciously with me. Because of God's grace to Jacob and all that he'd experienced of God's grace, he wanted to give gifts to his brother. He wanted him to have it. And Esau's resistance wasn't enough. He wanted to give it because he'd experienced something from God. He had to be open-handed with what he had. Because Esau had been gracious to him, he wanted to, out of gratitude, be gracious back to his brother. If he was going to give Esau something, it would no longer be to try to find favor with Esau. He already had that. He already got it. It had been showered upon him through tears. And through hugs. And now, if he's going to give something, it won't be because he's trying to get something. It won't be trying to make himself feel better. It will be because of God's grace to Jacob. He wants to give Esau gifts. This is the motive for Christian living and for, for Christian giving. That could have been a good sermon title right there. Motives for... Living in Christian life. The motive of Christian living springs out of the soil of grace. We don't live to earn. We don't give to get. We don't love for the sake of self-approval or warm, fuzzy feelings inside. God has been gracious to us. We will live with gratitude. That is our motive. Thanksgiving's coming up. In a simple and profound way, Thanksgiving is the meaning of a believer's life. Why do you live that? You're thankful? Why do I live open-handedly? Thankful? 
Why not joy today? You're thankful. Why did sorrow be turned in hope to the Lord because you're thankful? It's God's new time. That's the Christian life. Gratitude. But secondly, Jacob says to Esau, because I have enough. I have enough. Who in our world today, in that day, and any day in between, believes they have enough? Who would say, I have enough money? We always think enough would be 10, 20, or 30 grand more a year. Don't we? Just think about that. If you make $30,000 more a year, doesn't that feel like all of your problems would be gone? I mean, you know, intellectually, you know, spiritually, they wouldn't, but you're kind of thinking, but kind of they would. There's a proverb in the book of Ecclesiastes that says, and money is the answer to everything. Kind of feels like Jacob's second motive, he said that because I have enough, that's why I want to give this to you, Jacob. I, I don't, I, I have enough. And the Christian man or woman gets freedom from the need for more. More stuff that hasn't made you happy isn't the answer to make you happy. And so often we buy the lie that I'm not happy because I didn't get it. It wasn't potent enough, or it wasn't large enough, wasn't big enough, wasn't enough money, or it wasn't. And larger portions of things previously tried and proven to fail don't provide the pathway to happiness. And God is freeing us from the false gospel of more. Because friends, more... More is a powerful false gospel. It thrills our hearts to think about more. More of what you like. Football's coming up. I love three games on a Sunday afternoon. Jordan hates one game on a Sunday afternoon. More. More is a false gospel because more of the things that we love that are not God, even some good things, can be quite thrilling at a feelings level. Our feelings get engaged in the things we love. We just think about even just things like more money or food, whatever it may be. And I'm wrestling with this whole food thing right now. What's longer? Last week challenged me because I am required by the Lord now to surrender food. I've got a stomach problem, and I have not been wanting to surrender food. I've been kicking and screaming and whining and complaining about because I love acidic food. I love pizza. Okay? I love tomatoes. I love everything you eat. Apparently, it's just. And I've got to surrender food because it's messing me up the insides. So I'm going to hold on, kick and scream, or surrender. Because good news to me, I tell you, it would thrill my heart if I could eat whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. You said for the majority of my life, that's been the way that that's been the case. More food of what I love, that would be thrilling to me. It's a powerful false gospel. You think food, how's that a false gospel? Anybody here love to eat? Who loves Dixie Cream Donuts? What if you could eat that every day and not get sick? That would be very good news. Very good news. But more and more and more of whatever it is. You've heard it from me, folks. It's not the answer. Jacob says, I have enough. And he gives. Jacob and Esau begin to discuss what's next. What's next for us? 
Where we go from here? That's my paraphrase, at least. Verse 12 through 14 shows us what they come up with. Look with me. Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. And Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and the herds are are, are a care to me, or in, over my care and my responsibility. And if they're driven hard for one more day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass ahead of the servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. This is the plan. Esau is going to go ahead to Seir. Jacob and his crew, his household, his animals, are tired. And he tells his brother, I, I, we need some recovery time. And when we get recovered, we won't be far behind. We will join you at Seir. And I wish that I could report to you that Jacob's life of deceit and cheating towards his brother. I wish that I could report to you that it was all over. And his old ways were completely left behind. But I can't. Because the scriptures tell us of the realities of the patriarchs. Those in whom we look to in the scriptures and we have a tendency to put on a pedestal. And we look at their lives and we examine them closely and we realize they were men and women just like us. They still struggled. They were dusty a little bit. Tim and I talked about that term. They're a little bit dusty. They struggled. They didn't at this time have the presence, the, the, the presence and the power of the indwelling spirit as do we today. But Jacob comes up with this agreement with Esau and then he begins to break that agreement immediately. I think it gives insight into Jacob's psyche about what he is thinking about Esau. I think it reveals some level of doubt about what's going on with his brother Esau. And it continues to give us a, a, just a continued growth in this whole metaphor thing to understand even the Christian life, the things that we deal with, not just the things that Jacob deals with. Jacob, in verse 15 to 20, goes against what he said he would do for his brother. Let's read it, 15 to 20. So Esau said, let me leave with you some, piece, some of the people who are with me. But he said... What need is there? Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made boots for his livestock. And therefore the name of the place was called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem which is by the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan, Padan Aram. And he camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohim Israel. I'll go with you to Seir. And he goes four miles west. Stayed there, recover, understandable. Rehydrate, replenish, feed the livestock, 
get energy, go to Seir. Uh-oh. He doesn't. He leaves and goes to the city of Shechem, 40 miles away in the opposite direction. And then he buys property there. All the while, Esau's at Seir, possibly, we don't know, tapping his foot, wondering, where'd he go? I thought there was sweet reconciliation. What's the deal? We do find later, when their father dies, Jacob and Esau are at Isaac's side. They're at the grave. But we don't hear about anything else about Jacob and Esau other than that. Then together, anyways. Why did Jacob do this? We see fear, it seems, and we see distrust, it seems. Based on previous behavior, it seems like he is rooted, like it's all rooted in Jacob's distrust of Esau. Is Esau really the man he claims to be now? Has he really forgiven me? If I follow him, is that behavior, is that posture going to remain? Or is he going to have a bad day and remember all I did against him? And all that rage, all that wrath, is it going to come roaring back? And am I going to be subject to Esau? Am I going to be terrified again for everything that is mine? I'll let him go his way. And I'll go separate myself from him and leave a safe amount of distance. I'll accept the reconciliation that's been handed my way, but suspicion remains. Believer, is this you? Are you Jacob? Do you distrust God? The way Jacob distrusted Esau. Our flesh and the enemy of our soul wants us to live like this. Suspicion. Is God really for me? Does He love me? Yeah, I don't forgive, but really? I'll keep a safe distance. I'll take the forgiveness, the reconciliation, the memory of the tears that were crying. I'll keep it not in my back pocket, in my front pocket. I'll remember it. But we need some distance, Esau. Subtle doubt about the trustworthiness of God creeps in. Is God's wrath really appeased for me? Is His will for me really better than my will for me? Jacob, like any other man and woman, is confident in His will for him, as are you. We can trust our will for us because it's beautiful. It's everything that we want. And the enemy wants us to doubt that God's will for you and His will and desire for you to grow you as a human being. He wants you to doubt because this plan that God has for you includes suffering. He wants you to doubt in His good plan for you. 
Are my sins really forgiven? Can I follow Jesus to seer, to seer, or do I want to play it safe and shepherd? And many believers exist much of their lives experientially, never feeling, feeling, feeling the realities of what we believe. We say we believe our sins are forgiven and I'm right with God and God has been merciful to me. And yet we fear His plan and His goodness to us. We fear to submit, to let go. We trust our plans more than His. We believe that we are the active ones and that He is the passive one. And we want to keep a safe distance. Am I really forgiven? Turn with me. I want you to see Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 17. Thank you. 
As surely as Esau's wrath was gone, our Heavenly Father's wrath is no more to us. We can trust the finished work of Jesus. Do not fall back into fear. And non-believer, hear me, hear me, hear me. One day, if you do not trust in Jesus, you will remember this day. And remember this moment. And you will have to give an account. No work and no gift can make Esau happy. Likewise, we sing about it. No gift, no act that you do or do not do can make God happy with you. No things that we can accomplish in this life can remove God's wrath. Only in Christ can your sins be forgiven. Only in Christ does the God of the universe bring you into His family. And the question I set before you is, will you repent of your sins? God, I'm sorry. Death, by the way. And will you trust in Jesus? Let's pray.